Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, generally speaking, small service-based businesses are pretty tough to sell. And I think I'd put Walter Bergeron's business in the early days in that camp. I mean, they had a million dollars in sales. They were struggling with competitors. Cash flow is tight, very lumpy in terms of demand. When he made a simple strategic change to the way he ran his business and the way he built his customers. That change made a huge difference to his overall business. They started to grow very, very quickly. Ultimately, were acquired for a $10 million price tag. It's a great story and the power of subscription models. I'll let Walter Bergeron tell you the rest of the story. Walter, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm really excited about sharing whatever I can with your audience. You know, this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Oh, good. Okay. Well, so tell us about this business that you sold, Power Control Services. So, you know, it's it's not a very sexy business at, at all. It was something I learned whenever I was in the Navy. We repaired industrial electronic circuit boards. And so when I was in the military, I actually repaired circuit boards on nuclear power plants aboard aircraft carriers. And so I took that skill set and take, took it out of the Navy and started doing that for large manufacturers uh, in, uh, in North America. Large, um, we specialized in food manufacturers um, like Tyson Foods or large, large places like that that actually had an automated process for making food. During that process, there's a lot of electronic equipment that's involved, and um, it worked out great because there's a lot of a lot of water used in making of food, and water and electronics don't mix. So that was great for our business because it broke all the time, and we got to fix those electronic circuit boards for all those manufacturers. Excellent. And so you had um, you had kind of te- technical people in a factory somewhere who would take these old or broken circuit boards and 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 fix them? Was it less sort of people-intensive business? It was. It was really service-based intensive, and that was one of the lessons I learned along the way was to try to get away from that. But it was a highly technical, skilled environment that we would have the manufacturers pull the broken parts out of the equipment and ship it to us at one of our service centers, and we'd repair it at the service center, then ship it back to them, and then they'd install it and go back to operating. And what does it cost to fix a circuit board at Tyson Food? I mean, we're talking hundreds of dollars, thousands, tens of thousands. What would a typical job cost? A typical job was would be in the four or five thousand dollar range. Anything less than that, it's kind of like your television. You know, if you can re- replace it for a few hundred dollars, there's no real reason to replace it. When you get into the really high end stuff, then you want to repair it versus replace it. So it really depended. Sometimes we'd get the lower end stuff, but for the most part, we repaired the higher end large industrial circuit boards. And so you were in the Navy. I mean, were you an accidental entrepreneur? I mean, had you always dreamed about being an entrepreneur, or was this something you kind of fell into? It was something I'd been doing probably since I was 12 years old, washing cars in my parents' driveway. You know, it was always something I was driven to do. Uh, My dad had owned a small service company when I was younger, so I saw that example. And even though he got out of it at a certain point, I kept in it. And even when I was in the Navy, I actually did uh, businesses on the side while I was in the Navy. So it was something kind of always, I felt like I was born to do some kind of a way. Got it. And so tell us about the growth. I mean, you, you left the Navy, you know, was it just you? And, and tell us about the growth rate and, and where you ultimately got to before you sold it. 
Well, it was a really slow growth. I think as any entrepreneur will attest to many times, you start off thinking that the business is about performing whatever it is that you do when you realize that it's about so many other things other than, you know, for me, it was repairing circuit boards and that was just doing the actual, the, the, the service itself. But there's so much more that goes into it. So at first it was really slow. It was a, it was a huge struggle to find customers and service clients and do sales calls as well as do the repairs. But we eventually grew it slowly. It probably took me almost eight years before we hit the the million dollar mark. And when I sold it, it was end of 2012. We were right at a run rate of just at seven million dollars. So it was it, it grew, and towards the end, it grew a whole lot faster because of some of the things we did. I'm sure we'll get into, but um, it took a long time. It was a slow growth business, and it took me 16 years to get to the point where I was ready to sell it. So you, the first eight years it took you to get to a million and then how many years between a million and seven million in terms of annual revenue how many years did that take well the the seven million dollar ramp up started see, see we we stalled out for a few years too so right around 08 and uh you know when when the economy kind of took a tank we we slowed down quite a bit and then we ramped up again probably in nine or ten and for the last three years we were doubling in size uh, every single year and before we got to the $7 million run rate point and then sold it. So it was growing really quickly because of some of the decisions we made with our marketing and sales process. Big, I mean, I want to get into the sale itself, but before we get there, what was the, if you could distill down, say one killer idea, one, you know, one thing that you could point to that really helped you grow the top line of the business, what would you say? It would be the marketing and, and coming up with a unique message. Give me a, maybe a specific example of what unique message you came up with and how you got there. Well, our, our, our unique message was that we repair it and we give it a lifetime warranty. In our, in our industry, one year was the longest anyone would warranty their repaired equipment for. Well, when we took that out of the equation, a lot of business started coming to us because we had a different message. Everyone else was in a me too mentality, but we, as, we came in at, at a whole different angle. So if I'm Tyson Foods and I'm dropping water on all these, electric, like, isn't that a bit of a liability for you, though, if you're guaranteeing them you know, for the lifetime of the, of the part? Sure, but we knew that our, our cost to make the repair was so low that even if they did this four or five times, we would still be on the positive end. We'd still be in the black on the repair because there's such a high margin in the repair. And does the customer still have to pay for the shipping to ship the part back to you to get it repaired? No, we, uh, we built all that into it, and that was another key thing we did was put membership into a service-based industry. And so when we had membership levels, that was all included in our monthly membership fee. Well, now you're talking my language. Tell me about the membership. I love this stuff. Oh, well, see, so, well, uh, you know, something that we stumbled upon was how do we get paid? See, every month we're starting from zero again. If, if equipment didn't break, which um, we were a bit seasonal. So during the summer when the heat would get into all this electronic equipment, the moisture and humidity, they would break more frequently. So we're busy during the summer, not quite as busy during the winter. So we had to figure out a way to do this. And we took it from the HVAC industry where they had maintenance contracts. Um, so we stole that idea from the HVAC industry and applied it to our own industry where they would pay us. Um, I think the starting level was at a, a $9.97 a month. So right at $1,000, they would pay to be a member where it included all their shipping, um, it included free insurance on the equipment that we'd ship back and forth because a lot of these guys would self-insure it. And so we'd build in different, um, different uh, services that they would normally pay for separately and we build it into a membership. And we had three or four different membership levels. So how much of your, your revenue was coming from the membership levels when you sold the business? 
close to 40%. We had quite a bit of it coming in through membership. And it was really nice to start the month <laughs> with some cash in your pocket, knowing that the employees would be paid based off of uh, the recurring revenue. Love it. Love it. Love it. So let's get into the sale itself. So, you know, you're growing this business is doubling every, every year. I mean, the skeptic might say, why on earth would you sell it? What was the trigger? Yeah, so I, I think the trigger was really three events happening all towards the end of 2012. Uh, one of the biggest ones was that the tax laws were about to change here in the U.S. From the capital gains taxes were going from 15% to 25%, I believe was the detail. Um, so a 10% change in, in capital gains rates, which is significant at a $10 million level because this was you know, literally a $1 million law that was going to significantly affect the sales price. So that was one thing. We knew that that was coming. And then Somebody made us an offer, even though we had told them no previously, that um, that had met our my, my own personal goals of um, of selling the business for. And then at growing at that level, we had been performing so so high level that uh, I, I was getting a little bit burnt out. There was a period where I just wanted some rest, and it was really um, it looked really appealing to not have to work for a little bit of you know for a, a little time uh, if we were to sell the business. And so somebody came to you with an offer that met your kind of dream offer or what you in, in, in your own mind had decided was, was the price that you'd sell the business for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, I guess, played a little bit more savvy game beforehand. We had actually divested part of the business 11 different times prior to the final sale of the business. And it was one of those previous divestitures, which was the final buyer for the company at the end. So they came to us knowing uh, firsthand what the business was about. So it, it sped along the diligence process quite a bit. You lost me on 11 different divestitures. What do you mean by a divestiture? And <laughs> can't even say the word. And, yeah, so so so, tell so me more. the the vesture is just really it's um it's selling a part of the business. And in most cases it's selling a division of a company that's usually underperforming. Um earlier on I had gotten involved with a mentor from SCORE, the Service Corps retired executives, that had gone through this in his own company. And what we had done is we would take small parts of the company that were actually high performing what we called um, renewable Rembrandts. So the Rembrandt in the closet is the, you know, the really great part of your business that you don't realize that you have until you kind of pull it out and, and see what you've got. So um, I, I often say that McDonald's is really good at training teenagers to operate a, a hamburger stand. Well, the Navy is really good at taking teenagers and allowing them to operate nuclear power plants and fly fighter jets. So the process by which the Navy actually trained people was something I took into my company. And what I did was I took that part of the company and actually sold the process of training employees to other companies. So we would actually divest, sell part of the company to other companies. And it was renewable because we never lost the ability to train our employees. So we had gone through the, the acquisition and mergers process multiple times before the eventual sale. And the eventual buyer was one of the people that actually bought one of those smaller divisions of our company. So the divisions that you were selling, I mean, give me a sense of their size. Are these small exits or what, if you could, what, what's oh, yeah, the yeah. revenue? These, yeah. 
Yeah, these were uh, start off very small exits. I think the very first one was around seventeen thousand dollars, and it went with one employee and just a bunch of pre- procedural manuals and how-to books on what we did, what we did, and we didn't sell it to our competitors. We always sold it to a complementary business, and uh, like a see, we were in electronics, so we would sell it to a mechanical firm that had a similar customer that we did. And, um, and so we'd sell it like that. And so we'd gain some experience at sitting at a negotiation table. So by the time I actually sold it two years ago, I had done this a number of times, which I think played a key factor in being able to handle the diligence a lot faster, a lot easier, and then getting the eventual sales price. Got it. And well, speaking of price, what did you sell it for? So the final price was just over $10 million, which was... A multiple of close to 17 um, because the earnings were, were fairly low since we're investing so heavily in growing the company. So we were just under half a million dollars in the actual earnings. So selling for 10 was a pretty significant number for me. Wow. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Now, let's get underneath that number a little bit. That, so that's, was that in cash or did they pay you uh, with some sort of earn out or what was the, what was the makeup of the 10? Well, you know, it helped that they came to me. So the, the way the transaction occurred was really in my favor. The first time I divested a part of the company to them, it was 100% earn out, meaning I would not get anything had, <laughs> had, it, didn't, had it not performed. When it came to me, when it came to them to buy the me, uh, the, the very last time, it was uh, all cash deal, which I don't know if I would have done, if I, if I look back, I might have done a little bit differently knowing what I know now, but at the time it was an all cash deal. And that also played into the fact that the tax laws were getting ready to change since this would all be counted as a capital gains transaction. Got it. Okay. So that was important to you for the reasons you've already stated. So um, you had this experience selling companies to, to in the past. So you were using that. Of the, the 11 uh, sales that you'd gone through before, what proportion of them were sold to the same uh, buyer? Just one. We had sold it just one time. The other times were all to different buyers. And um, uh, this is such a fascinating. I've never heard this before in terms of a business strategy. So you're you're selling off parts of your business that aren't as high performing. Is that right? Well, that's the normal way to do it. So when you you know the larger companies divest a division, they usually sell a division that's underperforming because they want to get rid of it as a burden to the main company's profit level. We took a little bit opposite approach. We looked at the parts of the business that were doing extremely well that we could that we could replicate so that when we sold that division, we didn't actually lose any asset of the business. We were just really careful on who we sold it to. So we would proactively seek out buyers versus having buyers come to us. So if we identified someone that had the same customer that we did, we would very easily, and we knew that they had some type of um, problem with initially it was hiring and training new employees. So if we, we saw a customer that are a, a, a complimentary business that had problems training employees and keeping good employees, we would offer them the little teaser sheet and see if they want to buy the company. We did it enough times to where we actually got some people that are actually paid for it. Wow, that's fascinating. And were they all to do with training employees, these 11 different businesses? At first, at first it was. I think we did the, the training section of it six times, five or six times. Then we did, um, well, you mentioned membership. So one of them we did as a membership, and then another one we did as uh, 
the sales division. So we had a, a way to go and visit clients. And if anyone wanted to get into that distribution channel to sell their products the same way that we sold our products, they could buy that division of our company. And you, you see it all the time now, John. You see companies selling consulting for sales consulting. And so we just took this to a whole different level and sold it as a division of our company. Wow. So yeah, what was the difference between just selling as a, as a service, which a lot of companies would say, well, that's just a service that we're selling versus yeah. selling in a, a whole entire division. Like what, what, what made those two things different in your mind? Some key parts to it. One is we would always do it as an actual company. So we'd sell it as an LLC or an S Corp. So we'd sell it as its own entity. It would usually come with people attached to it. And then it also came with a, um, an employment agreement. So I would usually go in myself. And if it was the training aspect of it, I would go and actually help them train for four to six, sometimes as long as nine months to train their employees and then sell that portion of the business. And then once we kind of got rolling, we were able to, I was able to train other people within my business that would actually do the, uh, the, um, the employment agreement portion of the sale. Got it. Got it. Okay. So when you sold this business for 10 million bucks, you were, if I get, if I've got the math right, you were, you were doing about 7 million in annual revenue with about $500,000 in, in, in profit, pre-tax yep. profit. Sort of. So we sold it towards the end of the year and the run rate, you know, I can't say, I don't know the actual tax uh, <laughs> um, number at the end of the year. The run rate was at $7 million, which means that we had an income of just under $600,000 per month. So what we found out, what we ended up at the end of the year, I don't exactly know. It had to be close to $7 million just because of the way we were moving towards that goal. And that's really back to the membership idea that you're, you're charging people every month. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. And was the buyer worried about this idea of the unlimited sort of money back guarantee on fixing the components or how did you get them kind of over the hump of that? Well, that was part of the reason that they did. So I think I know I know one of the reasons was the things that differentiated us within the industry is what attracted us to them. And one of them was the fact that we could justify with the numbers how this worked out better every single time and that the industry standard way of doing things with a one-year warranty only, um, it didn't make any sense. There's no reason to only have a one-year warranty that you could repair it multiple times over because we had 15 plus years of data that showed that even the worst customers only send it back once or twice after they get it repaired. So the best ones, we would make money every single time. And we knew that that was a message that would resonate with our clients enough to make us look different than our competitors. Got it. Okay, great. So let's get into the actual negotiation itself. Uh, you know, you mentioned if you had it to do over again, you might do a couple things differently. What, what were some of those? Well, um, I think that the biggest thing I've done differently was, and I know this is a bit counterintuitive, but I might have built in a little bit of earnout on the back end, seeing what they did with what, <laughs> what they bought. So they took this $10 million purchase and turned it into, as far as I can tell, over $50 million in just under three years. So that kind of growth because they had fantastic, you know, they had really, really big client list. They took this and really grew it faster. If I would have done it again, I might take as much as a 20% earn out, knowing that they were going to grow really quickly. Now, 
the structure of the earnout would have to be just right. But I think I'd have done a little bit more of that earnout on the back end. How would you have structured the earnout if you had it to do over again? Well, I think because part of the earnout would be that uh, growth of that division versus growth of the whole company. Um, there are also earnouts that are done where if the company, the, the, the parent company makes no profit, then it doesn't matter what your division grows at, there will be no payout of that earnout. So you'll have to structure it you know, properly to where you can actually earn the money and not make it to where the earnout is uh, is really easy to say no to, to where they don't have to pay it. Because most earnouts are like that, that I've heard of, that it's the designed to where any little hiccup in the in the uh, performance-based uh, d- disclosure document that you sign, any little hiccup in there prevents the earn-off from being paid. So I'd have to be real careful with it. Had you always dreamed of the $10 million number? Is that a number that was important to you? Did you, did you have it written down on some sort of goal sheet that you tracked? Uh, I, it's so funny. At the beginning of that year, I... Um, I, I did a uh, mastermind group, and one of the, the exercises was to write down your enough's enough number. It was my number. I forgot about it. I had kind of forgotten about that number until after the deal was over when I'm going through some older notes. And sure enough, it was $10 million, and I didn't remember that, that I had written it down until afterwards. Hmm. Why was yeah. that number so meaningful? What, what did it represent to you in your mind? I mean, we were only at, you know, at that point, we were probably doing just around $3 million. So 10 just seemed like it would be enough it'd be enough to live off of uh, the little 4% retirement thumb rule that everyone talks about. So that would be around $400,000 a year. And I could, I could live off of that. I mean, and, and that would be enough to where I could pass it on to my son and I could help out some people that I, 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 uh, I do some work with now. So it just seemed like it'd be enough number to enough money to do what I want to do with it. And as well as I could do it quickly because I felt like the company was growing pretty quickly at that point. It could achieve that without 10 or 15 more years of running it. Got it. So you have this negotiation. Did, did you use an M&A professional to, to sell the business? Did you represent yourself? Maybe walk us through that. So during those other divestitures, I'd built up relationships with <clears throat> a CPA that had done, done multiple M&A uh, events. Uh, th- at the very end of it, it was just a local law firm that had a little M&A department, a real boutique um, M&A firm that was only focusing in industrial sector and in the, the southeast of the U.S. So it was, I guess, a real small M&A firm at the end. Got it. So you, you didn't hire an M&A firm to go out and, and, and pitch, get you like five different deals. You, you did this deal with this one company that you knew was an acquirer, but you did use a lawyer to, to kind of paper it correctly. Exactly. Maybe I could have done it a little bit differently by having them present multiple offers, but we were pretty tight on that uh, December 2012 timeframe when the tax laws were going to change that. When the offer came up, you know, when LOI came in for larger than my uh, enough's enough number, we decided to run with that offer. And how long did you have between the time you got the letter of intent and the end of the calendar year? Oh, right about 90 days. Wow. And so there was a, there was a real, uh, yeah, a was real intense period of time getting that diligence. <laughs> what was the due diligence period like for you? Uh, what it, it was about six weeks long, which is fairly quick as far as I'm concerned. It was still as intense, way more intense than any of the other small divestitures I went through. So it was still tough. It was, um, you know, it was 
so revealing of the things I had done wrong. It's like what? Uh, it's a tough period. So some of the things that I had done wrong, I should have hired uh, a sales staff uh, much more quickly. Some of the divestitures, there were some tax issues that I didn't take care of like I should have that we had to go back and uh, and do some more paperwork on to, to, to make it look right for this final this final sale. So there were some things I didn't do right, but it was it was a tough. It was as tough as um as tough as any other ones I went through. Hmm. What advice would you give another entrepreneur just about to go through due diligence? Prepare. Prepare on the front end. Get as much information as you possibly can. And you can also do your own your own due diligence if you have the right firm that'll that'll help you go through it that has done this before that can help you um prepare on the front end and have as much documentation ready because there's a, a lot of this is standardized. There's a lot of things you're going to ask for that you know you'll have to present. And so your, your own uh, M&A firm that's helping you through this can guide you along that process and make it a little bit easier when things get started. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've heard a lot of, a lot of people doing pre-diligence, even accounting yeah. firms offering pre-diligence, which basically means getting your business, uh, you know, everything they're going to ask for in due diligence ready you know, in folders, uh, completely buttoned down so that when the other side says, okay, now we got to do diligence that, you know, they're just checking boxes, sending off pre-prepared documents. It makes it easier. It also makes you look a whole lot more professional, like you're prepared for this. And, um, and when you show that you're really, um, that you're really prepared, it, it, I think it induces a whole lot fewer questions because it looks like you, you know, you've done your homework. It's not your first rodeo, so to speak, when you go through this. What's life been like? I mean, you got this eight-figure check, 10 million bucks in the bank. I mean, just qualitatively, um, I know you're a family man. So how has this sort of changed your uh, outlook on life? How has this changed your, the way you live every day? Well, I guess there's a, you know, some good things and a bad thing. So the good thing I really think is that before when I was building that company, part of the burnout that I felt was that I was always working and there were so many things at home that I was missing that I really wanted to be a part of. My son, I've only got one little boy, his football days and some really uh, significant things in his life, I was missing out. So being able to be the dad who's there every single day, as much as he does not like me being there at school every day, I was able to finally do that after a long time. So I really enjoyed doing that and being a real significant part of his life. Um, my wife and I worked together, so we saw each other every day, but there wasn't a whole lot of communication. She ran a different division of the, the business than I did. And so we got to say hello and eat lunch every once in a while. But now we got to spend, you know, some, some quality time, some real, and, and, and really that, that comes from quantity. You know, you've got to be there to experience those moments. They don't just happen. You don't get just to pick, hey, here's a great moment. I'll be there for that. You really have to be there a lot. Was there any part of you that um, was in any way squeamish about sharing the number publicly? I know, I know you've shared it in other places. Your son is now in grade seven, so yeah. you know eventually he's probably going to see some of the literature. Uh, wow, Dad's got a lot of money in the bank. Do, <laughs> do, do, do you worry that, that that might have an impact on him? Well, so we've sat down and actually he gets paid for performance just like I did when we owned the business. So um, if he wants money, it comes from his grades. Um, he plays football. So if he starts a game, well, then he gets paid just like a professional athlete does. So he has to pay for, you know, he, he earns via his performance as well. Wow. So that's great. So you've been pretty candid with him and, and in fact, instill those same lessons in, in the way he's being brought up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
That's great. That's great. Now, I have to ask this one question, which I, I, I generally ask everybody on the show. But, I mean, have you, have you bought something as a, as a, a trophy to yourself in, in, in getting this big check? Was there anything you went out and bought that might, people might have a, a fun hearing about? Well, you know, I'm a uh, <clears throat> so being part of the family, getting that that freedom when the uh, employment agreement was uh, eventually uh, over, we called it our summer of fun. So we went out. I bought a uh, we bought a little lake house, a big four wheel drive jeep, a boat, and two jet skis. So for that entire three months that he was out of school, we spent at a local lake, and then and we also did some scuba diving too. So we went and bought a bunch of little toys for us really to just to be on the water, which is something that we love doing. Yeah, no, I bet. I bet. Are you looking for other sons? I mean, you know, you only got one because I'm, I'm available if you need. <laughs> Just have a joke. <laughs> only, during, only during the summers and they've got to come with their own jet skis, John. So if you do that, we got it. We're, we're taken care of. <laughs> Walter, thanks so much for sharing this. This has really been helpful. Uh, what are you doing now? I mean, still at the lake house or I mean, what are you doing something else professionally now? What's, what's, what's going on with you? Well, summer's over, so now we're back at home and he's in school. But now, you know, part of the thing that I really enjoyed doing was, as you know, when we sold the business, I called it being a demoted CEO, which was you got to sit in the back corner now with your with your nose in a corner. You can't even look around. You're really kind of demoted, but you've got to be there every single day. And so if the new owner wants to take the building and paint it purple with pink polka dots, all you can do is advise against it, but you can't stop any of that. Now, the, the the sad part is that they do do some really ridiculous things when they take over. But the good side is that when you're involved in some of the big successes, that really kind of truly filled my heart with a lot of a lot of joy. So that leads to when I left, I wanted to be able to experience that. So consulting with other entrepreneurs um, and typically blue collar and industrial entrepreneurs that want to grow their business to the eight figure level and are willing to take action is something that I really enjoy doing. So I do a lot of that now on a private consulting basis. And I just have a little website. It's walterbergeron.com. And if anyone wants to go there, I'm happy to uh, to have a conversation with you if that's something you're interested in doing. And Bergeron is a unique name. So I, I, for our non-French speaking listeners, <laughs> I want you to spell Bergeron in case they're trying to find that website. Sure. It's Walter, W-A-L-T-E-R, Bergeron, B-E-R-G-E-R-O-N.com. Walter, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.